But I'll never forget when we went to Baltimore, um, we, we went to Fort McHenry. And I wasn't, I didn't, I'd never been there before, so I didn't really know what to expect. But we toured the fort, and they were giving us all this information and all these things. But then they went and took us into a room, and we sat down, and they had these big curtains all along the side of the wall. And I just assumed, well, it's because they're going to show this film that's going to tell us information about, you know, Fort McHenry. So I didn't really think about it. But they began to tell the story, and they began to tell the story of how Francis Scott Key and um, a few other gentlemen were actually imprisoned on a boat. And that the fort began to be attacked, and they had no idea um, what had conspired, what had transpired. They, they just did not know. And all of a sudden, they said the, the smoke filled the air and all of this, and they said, but as the smoke began to clear, this is the sight that Francis Scott Key saw. And then that curtain begins to come back. And sorry, that's a spoil alert in, in case any of you haven't ever been. So if you go, you'll already know. But I can't tell you the emotions that flood up my heart when that, when that window, when the curtains begin to come back and expose that window, and I could see the flag. And they said that's what Francis Scott Key saw, and he began to write the Star-Spangled Banner. Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light? And I, I know the emotions that I felt. And I can only imagine that that day at Calvary when... Everything, the dawn, and they said, we're going to go and we're going to kill, we're going to break the legs of these people on this cross. And Jesus had already given up the ghost and said it is finished, but it was not finished in the aspect that it was over because he came out of a tomb. And that resurrection morning, I mean, I, I would think that Mary or somebody would have to write something like the Star Spangled Banner, you know, like, victory is mine, right? Because he came out of that grave. And victory is ours. And today we are going to look at the life, uh, a small portion, I shouldn't say the life, but a small portion of the life of Gideon. And if there's one thing that I would like to impress upon you today from what we can glean from his story is this. Victory is mine. Victory is mine. Victory is yours. You may be in a struggle. You may be in a rut. You may be on top of the mountain. But I am telling you today that victory is yours. But you cannot just come and sit ourselves down in a chair and say, I know victory is mine. We have to pursue the one who brings us the victory. I don't ever want to come to a service again, ever. And sometimes I have to slap myself around a little bit, gently, (laughs) and say, hey, wake up. Do you realize that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is here today? And I I don't want to just sit there and wait for him to come and find me and say, hello, I'm here, but I want my radar to be up from the moment the service begins, and I'm looking for him, and I'm seeking for him, and I'm pursuing him. I want to be like David that he said, I'm like a deer that pants for the water brook. That's how my soul 
is hungry for him. So we're going to open today in Judges, Judges chapter 6. And I don't do this real often, so I'm really sorry for those of you that are sitting back at those electronics. Judges chapter 6. And we're going to start with verse 1 and read through verse 4. I will tell you that some of these, just for clarity, I have used the New King James Version. In what I'm going to read, you'll be seeing the King James up there. But don't be confused, all right? Let's read together chapter 6, verse 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. Then we're going to skip down to um, verse 7 and read through verse 10. And it came to pass, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now, then he gives a personal word, and this is where I want to draw from today. And we're going to start at verse 12 of this same chapter. And I want you to listen to the personal word that the Lord has for Gideon. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Now watch how Gideon broadens it in the next verse to include more than just himself. In verse 13, and Gideon said unto him, the Lord just said, Hey, you are a mighty man of valor. And Gideon says unto him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles, which our fathers told us of, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, the Lord knows how to get us right back on track to what he originally said, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, hey, how come you're not with us? And the Lord brings it right back down to Gideon, and he said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I, have not I sent thee? And Gideon realizes, okay, I'm not going to be able to make this a group project. So then he has some answers for the Lord in verse 15. And he said unto him, Oh, my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, 
and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, that's not a problem, Gideon. Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. Now we all know the story. You've heard it in Sunday school class. You've probably read it. But we all know the story, particularly of Gideon's army, how it gets reduced, and how they have unconventional implements of warfare. But there are elements of this story that I don't remember being typically taught in Sunday school class. Maybe I was sleeping that day, but I think we usually started at where it's time to go out and fight the Midianites. But we have to understand that there are things that had to happen before Gideon is able to take 300 men with unconventional warfare and fight the Midianites. Gideon first had to recognize how God saw him. God says to him, you mighty man of valor. And I can see Gideon as plain as day. If he spoke in today's vernacular, he would have said, who, me? Who, me? Me? Me, Lord? God, you don't realize who you're talking to. And he tells him, he says, I live in the least of the tribes of Israel. And not only that, my family is the least family. And not only that, I'm the least of the least. So, Lord, I'm sorry, but you messed up this time because of everybody that could be the man of valor. I am the youngest one. And furthermore, I'm hiding in a wine press And instead of being out on the threshing floor, I'm hiding in here, beating wheat, hoping that the Midianites don't find me. I don't know about you, but that's not the poster child for the man of valor. It isn't. In my eyes, your eyes, even Gideon's eyes, he doesn't sound like a man of valor. But he could not see what God could see. And God saw something in Gideon that even Gideon couldn't visualize. I want to ask you, how many of you are fighting situations in your life and you feel like cowering in a wine press somewhere, hoping that your enemy will not destroy or take that little bit of victory that you've eked out? And you are protecting it hoping that you won't bring too much attention to yourself because it's going okay right now. But you know what? In the back of my mind, that other shoe might fall at any moment. I have to confess to you, there's been times that I have said in my spirit, you know what? I'm just, everything's okay. I'm just going to coast because it seems like when I get really vehement about victory and what I want from God... Then I get the devil's attention. And I don't want his attention. I'm just being honest with you. I don't want to bring too much attention to myself. But you know what? God was making Gideon aware that he had the ingredients that were needed for a great victory. Gideon, all I need you to know is this. You are the perfect person because you see yourself as unable to do it, unable to do it on your own. And that's what I need because without me, you can do nothing. But if you will put your faith, 
and your confidence in me, with me, you can win a great victory. And a victory that is not only for you, but it's for all of Israel. Some of you cannot see past your present circumstances. And you have convinced yourself that there is no hope. You're looking for a way out. You're looking for that person to come and lay their hands on you and pray the prayer that is going to absolve you of any responsibility for this victory. It's going to be a moment that all of this thing, these desires of my flesh, these desires, Lord, that are contrary to your word, they're going to be taken in a moment. But God is looking at you and telling you, Everything that you need is right here at your disposal, but you have got to put your hand in his hand and say, I don't know how we're coming out of this, but I know who has what I need to bring me through it. If you will accept that God has already decided and decreed that you are a victor, You can speak what God wants you to do in faith. Does not the scripture say, if God is for me, who can be against me? Realizing God's commitment to him was the first part of the equation for Gideon. The second part is, when I understand that God believes in me, and then I have to make some commitments. This is not a one-way street. This is the street that he begins. It says, whosoever, come unto me. And when I take that step of faith and come into him, it is a partnership that I can walk with him. And through me, God can do amazing things. I don't have to be a perfect vessel for him to work in. I have to be a willing vessel. I make the commitment to destroy everything else that would raise itself to be a God in my life. Do you know that we tend to think of idols as things that we can see and none of us, I mean, if you do, then I don't know about it. But I don't think any of you have statues to Buddha in your house. I don't think you have you know, icons that you have that you worship on a daily basis. But you know what? You and I can allow things to creep in and take priority in our life, and that is an idol. That is worship. Whatever you give your time, whatever you give your effort to, that becomes something in your life that you worship. Now, We see Gideon passing the first test God gave him. And this is the part in Sunday school that I didn't hear about as much, if at all. Like I said, I'm giving my teachers a pass because sometimes I wasn't listening. I've repented, but sometimes I wasn't listening. But Judges chapter 6, verse 25. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, this is his first test, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, 
and cut down the wooden image that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. But he got it done. That is Gideon's first test because he's already told us he's in the least tribe. He's in the least family, but in his family, he's the least. And now the Lord says, go take two of your dad's bulls and you're going to kill them and you're going to cut down that bale and you're going to build an altar and you're going to burn all this up. You mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, I'm on it, Lord, but I'm going to do it at night because I'm afraid they're going to kill me. And Gideon had to establish who he was in God, but that's not the only thing. The next thing was he had to establish that he would rid his life of all other idols. You can begin to see the evidence that Gideon is starting to believe what God is saying about him. If he didn't, he would not have taken those bulls and cut down the altar and the groves that were there for Baal and done this even if it was night. He destroyed him in the cover of night. But guess what? When he, he knew that when he did that at night, that those people were going to wake up and they were going to show up to worship their God and he knew they were going to find him out. He knew that as the youngest and the least, he is stepping out in faith in what God has already established that Gideon, you are a mighty man of valor. And I have to tell you, according to Scripture, I won't take time to read it all. You can read the rest of it. But those men were out to kill Gideon the next day. They got there, they realized it was gone, and they said, who did this? Who cut down this idol? And they wanted to kill him, and his dad finally said, hey, if Baal is so powerful, he can fight his own battles. You don't have to do it for him. You don't have to kill Gideon. If Baal is so powerful, he'll kill Gideon. Got him to thinking. And after Gideon has established his faith and trust in God and destroyed all the false gods, the Gideons gather and they understand that, you know what, we cut down this idle to Baal, but guess what? That same old enemy that they have fought year after year after year is still showing up. Now, God, I have made this sacrifice. I did what you told me to do. I, I cut down those groves. I, I took my dad's cows. I took down the Baal, the idol, I've burnt it all, I've sacrificed it, but they tell them, guess what? The Midianites are gathering in the valley, and they're coming after you. I think we can relate to that, because we have those God moments when we step to an altar, and we give our sacrifice to God. 
He asks us to do things. He asks us to release things that maybe we don't even understand why he's asking us to do it. And we do it in faith. And we believe it's going to be different this time. Something is going to have changed. And we step out in faith, trusting God that he will do what he said he will do. And that same enemy that has beat us up over and over and over again rears its ugly head and says, where do you you think you're going nothing has changed you're still under my power you're still under my control and what makes you think that this time will be different you're going to fall back into the same old patterns you're going to experience the same old defeats and in that moment is when I have to step out and say no the one who has given me the victory has spoken in my life and he has what I need and Lord you are going to take me to where we need to go I can say that I have come up against those enemies and fallen again but rather than say well nothing changed nothing really is different no I have to say I'm going back to that altar I'm going back to that place where he spoke those things to me where he said you are a mighty man of valor and I'm going to grab a hold of that promise again and I'm walking forward and I'm believing that he will do what he said he will do I shall arise. I will go forth. My deliverer is on the throne and he will stand with me. It's not about me and my strength. It's about my reliance on the God of my salvation. Weeping may endure for the night. That's what the scripture says. But joy is coming in the morning. It may look bleak, but I'm standing on the promises of God, my Savior. He created me to be an overcomer. The enemy may bring things and try to defeat me, but I'm telling you that there's enough promises in the Word of God that I can stand on them, and I can say, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. His Word does not fail. You know what? When I put all my eggs in Jesus' basket, he will stand with me. He will supply my needs according to his riches in glory. We see that before it's over, Gideon, his dad now calls him Jeroboam. Okay, his name was Gideon. Now he's calling him Jeroboam, which literally means let Baal plead. He made an impression on his dad already that, you know what? This boy, I never expected this out of him. Of all the people, I sure didn't expect that he would be the one to take Baal out. But he's done it. And I'm going to call him Jeroboam. And you know what? He leads an army of 32,000 men to fight the battle. Now, when you look in the historical part of this, the the enemy that he was facing was way bigger than 32,000 men. But, you know, for a guy that's the least... Of the least, of the least, he inspired 32,000 men to follow him. I think he did a pretty good job, don't you? Now the army 
Of 32,000 is following the least of the least, but Gideon is still not quite sure. And he reminds me of me. I believe you, Lord. I know you said you were going with me. I would rather, though, Lord, if it's all the same to you, I would just rather when we go to bed tonight that you would just slay this enemy without me having to step out. I would rather not have to step forward. I'm going to face this in sheer numbers. I'm going to arm myself with things I know will work. Do you find yourself in that where we try to calculate and figure out and, you know, Lord, first of all, we, I'd just like you to take them all out. I, you know, Lord, if they were going to see that you're the supreme being, you just do it, Lord. And we're going to, 32,000 of us are going to stand here with pom-poms, and we're going to cheer, and we're going to celebrate for you because you're the mighty God. And God says, no, that's not the way it's going to work. In fact, stripped of what appeared to be an army with the fighting chance, Gideon walks out to face the enemy they have to fail. <laughs> and they have been defeated by them time and time again. And he now has 300 men. And God tells him, God said, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. He was talking about the 32,000. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. If that wasn't enough... Then God said, I want you to have those 300 fighting men. Like Wayne Huntley said, you know, we might have a church of 50, but they're a really strong 50. I I imagine Gideon must have been encouraging himself like that. I mean, there's only 300 here, but they're really a good 300. I mean, I don't think they're going to take tail and run. And God says, now I want you to tell them to put their weapons down. And I want you to hand these things out. You're going to give each one of them a trumpet. And you're going to give each one of them a pitcher, and they're going to have a torch in the pitcher. Now, God, do you realize that when I do that, they're not going to understand this. They're going to think, okay, this boy, we knew, we thought maybe he had a screw loose. Now we know that he has it. And when I tell them that, you know, we know the end of the story. But Gideon didn't know the end of the story. We forget that so many times. We can jump to the last page of the book and say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. My husband, when they're, when they're uh, playing uh, sports like World Series or, or, you know, some momentous game, he never wants to know the score. Even though the game has already been played, he doesn't want to know the score. He wants to, it to unfold just like I'm just the opposite. I'm going to get on Google. I'm going to find out what the score is so that I can just relax. When Jack Buck is going, and now they're doing this and that, I'm like, we got this. We already won this. But Gideon was not that way. He did not understand that I've got 300 men. We have pitiful armaments that we're going to go out, and we are going to try and fight this battle. He had to trust that as they walked across that land to meet the enemy that had defeated them again and again, that God was going to keep his promise and he was going to deliver them. And he did that in spite of appearing to be foolish 
and senseless. And you know what? When he put that faith and that confidence and that trust in the Lord, God showed up. And he defeated the enemy. I want to say right now, do not try and figure God out. It is impossible. Some of the things that he has asked me to do, I'm like, God, that is nutty. That's crazy. How is that going to help anything? But when I say, Lord, I do not understand, but I'm going to do what you said for me to do. I'm not going to rely upon my own self. Then when something feels like defeat, my feelings will lie to me. The scripture says my heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? There's things that come into my mind and feelings that come into my heart that seem to make total sense. But I have to understand that that's not true. The only thing that is true is his word. And it will never fail. And it will never lie. And I may get my perception skewed. I may think you're after me. You may think you're after me. But but you know what? I have to understand that his word is what settles it all. And I have to say myself, Cheryl Jean, you don't know the whole circumstance and the whole situation. Things may seem to be this way. Maybe you think those people have something against you. But get over it. Stand on the word of God. Trust that he will bring you through to the other side. I cannot rely on my own carnal thinking. Scripture says my thinking is opposed to God. So when those thoughts came to, come to me, I have to repel them. I have to say, you're nuts. You don't know. You are thinking through a skewed glass. It's not clear. You have got to go to the word of God. Galatians 5.16 says, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You know what that lets me know? We don't focus on what the lust is. We don't focus on the problem. I said this when we were um, teaching in the ladies' split sessions. You know, if I tell you, I want you right now, I don't want anybody to think about a big pink elephant. Don't think about it. Don't think about the pink elephant. Guess what we think about? A big pink elephant. Because we're focusing on what we don't want to do. That is a recipe for disaster. I can say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to. And guess what I'm focusing on? That is the center of my attention. But instead I say, Lord, I want to know who you are. I want to be like you. I want to walk with you. I want to talk with you. And guess what? He becomes my focus. And that changes me instead of focusing on what is wrong with my life, what is wrong with everybody else. I begin to focus on him and see his glory and know what he can do through me. And that helps me to walk in faith. I was listening to the testimony of Brother Lee Stone King and how he came to serve the Lord. And he actually was um, involved in a certain denomination, heavily involved in Campus for Christ, um, a lot of different things. And he said that his relatives came and visited him, came for dinner, and um, the, his 
relative, I think it was his cousin, said on the way out the door, everything this book says, his Bible was sitting there, you have to do everything this book says to be saved. And he said, that's all she gave me. And he said, I just thought, well, okay, I think I'm doing that. But then they called a minister, Brother Butcher, and said, hey, we have a relative that lives here, and we feel like that he's very hungry for God. And they were right. And so I'm going to skip over a lot of details that he gave, but he told how that he would come home from work, and he said, I would lay on the floor for like two hours, and he said, I would just weep and cry and pray in the Spirit after he had been converted. And he said, you don't make that kind of effort to pursue the Lord and he not take notice. He does take notice. Many, many powerful uh, works and miracles and things have taken place in Brother Stone King's ministry. But this is the thing that I want to share with you. And this is by his own account. He said that when he was somewhere between 35 to 40 years of age, that the enemy of his soul came to him and said, all you have given to the kingdom has brought you to this point, and you have missed out on so much. You don't have a family. You're not married. You always wanted a son. You're, you're, you don't have a son. And he said, I fell on the floor, and I began to weep and to cry. He said, I can't even tell you how long I laid on that floor. And he said, I was just crying and crying and crying and weeping over what he had missed. And he said he finally got up and he called, and this was before he had passed away, he called the old prophet T.W. Barnes. And he said, Brother Barnes could tell that I had been crying, and he questioned him. And Brother Stone King related to him. He said, you know, I've just, I, it's just really hit me. I've realized that I have missed out on so much. I don't have a family. I'm alone. And he said, Brother T.W. Barnes spoke to him and said something. He said, it changed me forever and impacted me so greatly. He said, Brother Barnes said to him, if you do the perfect will of God in your life, in the end, you will have missed nothing at all. And Brother Stone King said, you know, at this point in time in my life, he said, I have more sons and daughters in the gospel than I know what to do with. And what the enemy tried to defeat and taunt him with, God had blessings for him that he could not even number. I want to tell you that God wants us to be honest with him. He wants us to be honest with ourselves. He wants us to be honest about our weaknesses, our faults, our shortcomings, our problems, our situations. You know what? We live in a fake plastic world. And we live in a world that is hungry for authenticity. You read in the scripture, who were uncomfortable with Jesus? Think about it for a minute. Who do we find in the scriptures that were uncomfortable to be around Jesus? It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and it was because they were fake. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And guess what? Truth makes free. Luke chapter 18, verse 10 and through 14. I want to read this in your hearing because I want to show you exactly this being exhibited. In verse 10, it says, two men went up to the temple to pray, 
one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off, or the publican, would not so much as even raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the scripture says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I tell you, we do not have to hide behind masks and facades. God invites us to come as we are. And guess what? No matter what you tell him, Lord, I was thinking about this. Lord, I did this. Lord, I felt this. Guess what? He's not surprised. He already knows. What it does is it opens us up to him and says, Lord, this is who I really am. He already knows the bad. He already knows the good. He already knows the ugly. And guess what? He still wants you. He still calls you. He still says, you're my own. He invites us to be transparent and go after him and reach for him. And his promises. I want to tell you, I have listened to a lot of young people. And this younger generation is hungry for authenticity. They've said we want the real thing or we don't want anything at all. They've seen so much, but they want to see the real thing. And you know what? More than games and activities. And I'm so glad that we have people that do things and, and have things for them. That's important. But there has to be more than entertainment that's available to this generation. They need exposure to a genuine relationship and involvement in a spiritual touch of God. Because guess what? That's what they're hungry for. They're hungry for a real move and touch of God. If we can transmit that to this upcoming generation and say, yes, we're faulted people. Yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we don't always do what we should. But we understand that there is a power that God has invested in us and them and their lives will be changed forever if they get a hold of that. If they ever get a taste of the transformation that comes when they're plugged into relationship with God and the power that comes with it, it will impact them in a way that we cannot duplicate with games and activities and things that we present through fleshly aspects to keep their attention. You heard the announcement about Youth Congress. I was listening to... to Brother Michael Inslee talk about this, and he said, you know, the, the city fathers and, and even the Connections Housing Bureau that they use, they've asked them, how, how have you inspired this many kids to want to come and have church for three days? Brother Inslee said, you know, we started years ago, and he said, we realized, he said, it was gut-wrenching when we had the last... Um, Youth Congress, and there were 
there were whole youth groups that could not come because it was sold out. And he said there were tears and there were kids saying, there were people saying, our youth group wants to be. He said it tore our heart out. And he said, we said, okay, we've got to do whatever we have to do to get out of the contract we're in and get a dome. And you, you know what? It took minutes. I know because I got on there just to see what was up. And I'm telling you, it started selling out like that because there were young people that are hungry for something of God. You look at foreign nations that predominantly practice Catholicism, and when they have a visit from the Pope, they will fill stadiums, and they will spend hours listening and praying in an effort to just feel God and experience God. And guess what? Young people love other young people. And when they lay their hands on young people and they lay their hands on people that need something from God and they see transformation take place that will change them in a way that nothing else will (laughs) and it not only changes them but it changes us it changes our church it changes the atmosphere that's here may I speak to the older Faithful, precious saints of God, who I am quickly getting right there in the middle with you, who have invested hours of prayer, and you have experienced powerful faith moments, and you can no longer jump and run and shout. You know what? Younger people can submit themselves, and they can revere and respect the lifetime of prayer that you have. And you can lay their hands on them, and you can transmit a lifetime of faith and power. Your work is not finished. Every opportunity I get that we go for Christmas or Thanksgiving, you know what, my nieces and nephews, they roll their eyes. My girls have just gotten used to it. They roll their eyes because they know what I'm going to do before we're done. I'm going to say, I want all of you kids to come in here. I want you to get down in front of mom and dad and I want them to lay their hands on you because every chance I get, I want the power and the experience and the faith that they have living inside. I want to transmit it to you. The older people have something to give. You have done your part, but you still have a part. Some of you have been given promises but you still need to possess them. You know, Caleb in the Bible was 85 years old when he decided, you know what? Moses told me over 40 years ago that I could have that mountain. And bless God, I'm 85 years old, but it's time that I took that mountain. And Joshua said, you take that mountain. And you know what? He possessed it in the latter years of his life. He never gave up on what he had been promised. Joshua 14, 12 says, It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord has said. You know, if you read on into that passage of Scripture, that mountain that he was taking was where the giants lived. It was the capital of the giants. But God gave him favor, and he did possess that city. And guess what it became known as? Hebron. And later in the scripture, you understand that Hebrew was one of the cities of refuge. What he was willing to pursue, that promise that he was willing to lay down his life for, it became a refuge to generations after him. Some of you have been given promises, but you need to pursue them. Don't be satisfied 
with where you have settled. God keeps his promises to those who believe. You know, I, I, as I said, I've, I've talked to a lot of young people, and I'm not just talking about young people in our own um, church, but just across the board. And you know what I hear from them? We don't want people to be cool. Instead of trying to make the gospel cool and appealing, I'm telling you, we need to strip away the traditions and the ruts that we have always done. And rather than try to reinvent the wheel and make it cool and nice, we need to get on our faces and we need to fast and we need to pray and we need to wait on God like they did in the book of Acts. I've listened to young people to discuss how tired they are of people speaking at their events and trying to be cool and impress them with how relevant they are. One young person in particular, I'll never forget what they said to me passionately. They said, don't try. They weren't speaking to me, but they were speaking of those. They said, we go to those things. Don't try and impress me with yourself. I don't need to be entertained and wild. We've got so much entertainment at our fingertips. Give me a word from God. Speak into my life what thus saith the Lord because that's what's going to change me and that's what's going to impact me. We can receive an inflowing that flows out of us. Rivers of living water, the Bible calls it, flowing from our innermost being that causes such a stir in our community that's so beyond our normal routine. Peter and John were going to church. Because the Bible says it was the ninth hour. And the ninth hour was the hour of prayer. That was the scheduled slot for prayer. But then they're faced with the dilemma. Because the lame man shows, well, he doesn't show up. I guess they show up. He's already there. And they readily admitted that they did not have the means within themselves as far as the greatest education or the kind of money, hey, bud, we're going to give you money. You can go to the best hospital. They're going to just take care of you the rest of your life. Brother Kyle preached about it not too long ago. They had the faith and confidence, not in themselves, but to know that they could say, look on us. And when you tell someone to look on you, you better have something there available. We see where they list their inadequacy within themselves. But they point him to who they have. The dependence that they have is upon the power of God rather than their own efforts. And it brought about a revolution. The scripture says that the fact that they were unlearned and ignorant and operating in this level of boldness clued those religious leaders into the fact these men have been with Jesus Paul on the other hand was not unlearned he was not ignorant he was as educated and as learned as anyone but we see him also refusing to lean on the arm of flesh he realized that only brought about empty rituals with no power first Corinthians 2 1 through 5 and this is what Paul says and I brethren when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech because he could have. He was a disputer and a persuader, the scripture says. Or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. 
For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of the power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Just like Gideon of old, you do not have to make excuses, God. I'm the least of the least of the least. No, Paul says, don't come with things of your own strength, but understand that you come in the power of the Holy Ghost. You come with the strength of the one who will never disappoint. We don't boast in ourselves, but we rely on the one who holds the universe in his hand. His word establishes what we will do. And when we trust him, he will stand by his word. 1 Corinthians, and I close with this. 1 Corinthians, with a couple of scriptures I want to read in your hearing. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace was bestowed upon me. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. And Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Grace is not just unmerited favor to save me. Thank God for his grace that saved me and forgave me. But it is, according to this scripture, that energy and fuel that says you can make it. You, day by day, it gives me the desire to do what God has called me to do because his grace lets me know that it's not about me, that it's about him. Victory is mine. I am an overcomer through Jesus Christ. I want you to know that you can stand firm in the realization that he will complete the work that he has begun in you. I want to tell you this. It will be his way. It will be his timing. And it will be his provision. But you can stand on it. You don't have to look to yourself. But we look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Can you praise him right now? Lord Jesus.